I did. I taught. Uh, I taught six years in a uh, maximum security prison in Texas, with Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And, um, as I start my remarks tonight about that, I want to just share with you about two two students in particular um, that I got to know really well in their four years uh, in the program. Um, the first person I want to tell you about his name was uh, Samarmandre Wideman. Uh, Wide Man was his last name. Uh, he was aptly named. Uh, Summer Mundre did 800 push-ups a day. I was, uh, that's not just uh, talk, I, 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 I witnessed it. Um, and um, Wide Man, I used to call him, I didn't call him by his first name, I just called him Wide Man. Um, I think his, his name was pronounced Wideman, but I called him Wide Man. <laughs> so Wide Man, uh, my first my first few weeks there, um, I gave a quiz. In my uh, it was a Western Civ class, and I gave a quiz, and the quiz was, you know, he wasn't prepared for the for the quiz. And uh, the next day, he got his grade back, and it wasn't maybe it wasn't quite what he was hoping for. Me, having never spent a day uh, for any reason in a maximum security prison, I'm still a little intimidated by my surroundings. And so wide man, I didn't know wide man very well. I just knew that he was a very large man. And he could easily break me in half without a whole lot of uh, had a whole lot of effort. You can see that I, you know, most of you probably could do the same. <laughs> and um, wide man comes up to me and says, Dr. Wilson. A D <laughs> on the on the quiz. Um, is that what you made? Said, I don't like that. I don't like that, Doctor Wilson. I'm like, hey, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, that's not cool. You should not do that. <laughs> uh, that's a funny story, and then I'll tell you another story. Um, Wide man is one of my favorite people in the whole world. He, he did great. He went through his. Um, <laughs> he, he, my last class, I taught uh, Wide man. Uh, I, I wrote a book on American exceptionalism, and I. I Incorporate this book in one of my classes, and the final exam was to write an essay on race and manifest destiny. So I just walked into the class and the exam. I want you to write. It was a, you know, two hours. I want you to write everything you know about race and manifest destiny. Right. So if I gave that to you today, you would know race and manifest destiny, right? Why man thought I said grace? <laughs> And manifest destiny, which I have no idea what I, I don't know what you would say to that. But he wrote like ten pages. <laughs> it's actually a really good response. So I did okay. Uh, he did a great job. He graduated in 2015, and he is uh, doing ministry in prison. Uh, the other individual I want to tell you about his name was Calvin Small. Or is Calvin Small? He's not dead. We're not having a funeral. Um, Calvin is uh, seven feet tall. And so I called Calvin Small, Small Calvin. That was my nickname for him. And he loved it, and everybody loved it. Um, when Calvin came to, when Small Calvin uh, came to the program, uh, he was uh, not a Christian. He didn't have to be a Christian to get into the program. And um, he was pretty hostile to just religion in general, not a person that uh, he wanted to serve others, and he wanted to learn, and he wanted to go through the program, but 
he was someone that uh, was not interested in, in religion. He was not interested in being uh, proselytized. Anyway, made it clear. Uh, after about six months, uh, I watched Calvin experience one of the most dramatic conversions I've ever seen a person experience. I mean, one week, Calvin was hostile to any form of religion. The next week that I saw him, I saw him a week later after he had uh, come to Christ, the man was a completely different person. He went through the program, and he graduated in 2016. <coughs> he was placed in, a, uh, in another unit with a, another team of graduates, and they're doing ministry in a unit in Texas. I remember asking, uh, asking him one day, Class, we were getting ready for class to start, and I said, uh, Small Calvin, I said, uh, what do you think I'd do in prison? <laughs> he said, not good, man, not good. I was like, that's not for me. <laughs> I tell you those stories because, um, you know, when we, when we think about um, prison, when we think about maximum security prison, we, we tend to think of the inmates in, uh, as uh, something like just, um, but we don't think about them in human terms. It's one of the things I learned, one of the things I saw in um, doing ministry in a, in a prison was that these were human beings. These were men. Um, they are often treated as subhuman. They're often treated that way by many of the officers. They are looked upon as subhuman by much of the public. Uh, they're kind of accustomed to being looked upon that way. Uh, they expected the professors to come in and treat them that way. Um, we didn't. We, we, we treated them as men. We reminded them. We know that you are men. You are created in the image of God, and uh, you're no different than me. And it was uh, one of the most meaningful um, experiences I've ever had in ministry. Let me tell you this other story. 1912, take us back. I'm a, I'm a historian, so we'll take you back to 1912. A man named John Egan. Uh, he was the owner of the American Cast Iron Pipe Company. And he founded the Men and Religion Forward Movement, the MRFM, in Atlanta, Georgia. The movement was dedicated to motivating churches, uh, to social action, pertinent to labor, immigration, temperance, Christian unity, uh, prison reform. It was an influential voluntary organization Made most up, most uh, mostly made up of white mainline Protestant denominations, or men oriented toward the social gospel agenda. So, figures like Washington Gladden, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, William Jennings Bryan, Booker T. Washington spoke at, at the Congress of the Men and Religion Forward Movement in 1912 at its founding. Two years later, Egan became something of a mentor to a newly minted attorney, fresh out of Columbia Law School, and his name was Philip Weltner. Egan helped Weltner get named Chief Probation Officer of the Fulton County Children's Court, and also helped Weltner get on the Executive Committee of the MRFM. Weltner had proven his worth as Egan's choice to head the Prison Association of Georgia from 1910 to 1911. Egan founded that organization to help ex-cons acclimate to society and to direct uh, child offenders away from a life of crime. 
So as head of the prison association, Philip Weldner oversaw the creation of the first children's court in Georgia. It was devoted to the rehabilitation of youth rather than punishment. And as a prominent member of the MRFM, he shared Egan's vision of making the mind of Christ the guide of Christian living. Now, the Georgia prison system in 1912 was notorious for its cruelty. The lash was still the officer's primary tool of motivation, hearkening back to the days of slavery. In fact, the state prison system was in some respect designed as a legal method of slavery after the war. We're going to turn into the 20th century. W.B. Du Bois wrote of the old Bolton Estate in Georgia, sprawling antebellum plantation, former and former plantation prior to the war in Doherty County, Georgia, which is down in South Georgia near Albany. We in Georgia we call it Albany. <laughs> the estate was converted into a prison camp after the war, and Du Bois wrote, "Quote: It was for many years worked by gangs of Negro convicts. It was a way of making Negroes work, and the question of guilt." was a minor question. The 13th Amendment certainly had abolished slavery, but it accepted slavery in cases of, as it reads, punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Du Bois wrote, he said, quote, the black folks say that only colored boys are sent to jail. And they, not because they are guilty, because the state needs criminals to eke out its income by their force of labor. Now, in his new position as Deputy Solicitor General of Fulton County, as a member of the MRFM and as a Christian, Philip Weltner decided to do something about this cruelty in George's prisons. But what, what could he do? So he was staying in a Newton, Georgia, hotel. He was laying in his bed. While he was laying in his bed, he decided to get a first-hand look at the inside of a prison. He wrote this in his memoirs. He said, I was lying in bed. The idea popped into my mind to become a convict myself. The next day, he said, I turned myself into a member of the Campbell County Commission in the town of Fairburn. He told this person that his name was John Marvel and that he was under a five-year sentence for forgery. Welder explained to the commissioner that even though his appearance before him seemed out of the ordinary, he was there, as he said, because the prison commission of Georgia trusted me to give myself up to him. So, Welder posed as a prisoner in what was known as a convict camp in Campbell County, Georgia. He was given a striped uniform, he was assigned to a hard labor gang, setting up telephone poles, and he was locked in a cage at night alone with a convicted murderer. Next morning after breakfast, as the men were loading off into the wagons to go to their work sites under armed guard, camp warden asked, John Marvel, come on, come on ahead, meet with the, the officer. The rest of the prisoners had left, Weltner learned that his story had been discovered, found to be a fabrication. He was handed his clothes and told to get out. 
immediately. The story was later picked up by the New York Herald, became a national sensation. It initiated ongoing newspaper coverage of prison cruelty in the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, which reported systemic brutality in the state prison system. Public demand for prison reform in Georgia, including the, uh, uh, the abolition of the use of the lash, ultimately resulted from Wiltner's courageous act of posing as a prisoner. So this story is personally compelling to me, not only because it's a story about a man who was willing to make an enormous sacrifice to help rectify moral outrage, it's also compelling to me because Philip Wiltner is my great-grandfather. I was 12 years old when he died, he was 94, even when I was a kid, I, I knew that he was a great man. He was a committed believer in Christ. He was deeply admired by people, rich and poor, black and white, all over the state of Georgia. So when I taught for six years, uh, taught history, in a fully accredited baccalaureate program sponsored by Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, this was at the Darrington um, unit, maximum security state unit, in Rocheron, Texas, just south of Houston. It was, an, it was an official extension of Southwestern Seminary. There's about 150 students enrolled in the program. The students graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Biblical Studies and are placed within other units in Texas. So Texas has about 135 state uh, units all across the state. Next to California, it's the largest state prison system. And the students are placed uh, in these other units after they graduate, and they serve as inmate chaplains. The student inmates are never getting out of prison. All of my students killed somebody. Uh, one student uh, killed his mother. Another student killed his girlfriend. Another student killed his infant daughter. Uh, all of my students killed somebody. But they have, since their crime, reflected on their crime, most of them have become Christians. All of them have made a commitment to serving others for the rest of their life. In fact, in order to get into the program, they have to, it's a requirement for them to be able to articulate repentance for their crime and a desire and a vision for serving others and devoting their life to serving others. Now, I like to think that I stood in my great-grandfather's shadow when I was doing this work, playing a role in the students' academic, spiritual, ministerial training. Prison presents many challenges. Teaching history there has a potential to provide a basis for meaning, for identity, for civic engagement, for the prisoners, as they exist day to day as individuals and in community with others. And it's very challenging. I had students who, uh, uh, who came from backgrounds of being in a gang. I had a student whose name was Jason. Jason graduated just last year, graduated in 2017. Jason uh, was a gang enforcer. So before he was in prison, he was someone that uh, uh, somebody owed the gang money. He was the one they sent to go and get the money from the person. He was in prison for life because he lit a person on fire, poured gasoline on him, lit him on fire, and burned him. 
Uh, he was spending the rest of his life in jail. Once he got into prison, he joined another gang and was an enforcer for that gang. Jason taught me how to fight. He told me, always go for the knees. Right. He still volunteered that to me one day. Thanks, thanks for the tip. Uh, I, is this something I should know about later? Jason was extremely motivated. He'd become a Christian in prison. Uh, he was uh, a person who uh, loved the Lord very, very deeply. And um, he was a person that was an incredible teacher. He learned something. He learned scripture, he learned theology, he learned history. He had an amazing gift to be able to translate that, to articulate that, and to uh, help others learn these things that maybe they had never really been exposed to. And Jason was also a white supremacist. And had a lot of white supremacists, former white supremacists in my classes. Had several members of uh, some of the Mexican gangs that were in my classes, former members of Mexican. Had, had a lot of um, uh, other uh, African-American students who were in prison for having, you know, done business with these folks, right, in, in various ways. So they came to prison as enemies. Here they are in this program as brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers in Christ, which was an amazing thing to see. Uh, one of the things I learned, too, when I was there reflecting on, on teaching history was that you walk into the prison, you walk into the Darrington unit. The Darrington unit, the prison, the building was built in 1930. No air conditioning. South Texas, no air conditioning. You can imagine this Walked into the, the unit. Uh, when you walk in, everything looks the same. Everything, all the surroundings are the same. It looks like you walk into a time warp into 1930. The windows are the same. The paint on the walls is cracking and falling off. It's probably original. Uh, there is there is very little evidence that time has passed since 1930. It is a, an endless now when you walk into prison. And it's, it's that way on purpose. So the students who are in our, in our class, some of them have been in this prison for 20 years. And very little had changed in terms of their physical surroundings. Uh, when you walk into the prison, when you walk into the, to the area, you know, to the, what we call Main Street, which is a long corridor that went the length of the, of the entire unit, there was a weird mixture of smells. Uh, a smell of sweat, uh, a smell of sewage, and a smell of pine salt, all mixed up together. And on really hot days, which, you know, if it's above, if it's above 95 degrees, you know, that's a pretty hot day, those, those sensations are even more pronounced. When I went down Main Street, uh, we had a classroom on one side of Main Street, another classroom that was on the opposite end of Main Street. The students are going from one side of the, of the unit to, a, to the other, to the classroom. I, I would always go with them. We would always go together. There would be an officer that would walk us through. Um, not at all uncommon that we would be walking through and, some, and there would be two Officers escorting a prisoner from Ad Seg. Ad Seg was uh, uh, basically solitary confinement. They'd be leading a, a, an inmate that had, was completely shackled, 
the two officers would have um, tasers and uh, 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 pepper spray. And it was interesting because um, whenever whenever the officers would be leading one of these uh, individuals down the down Main Street, it was uh, a rule that all of the other offenders, all the other inmates, had to turn and face the wall and stand looking at, at their feet as the uh, as said inmate was being walked through. Because making eye contact with the inmate from that seg could, could be uh, dangerous for them. So it was for their protection that they would all stand against the wall and look at their feet while the, uh, the, this, this particular prisoner was running up. Once they got to the end and we were going into our classroom, they would be strip searched. And so all the men had to take off all of their clothing and, uh, and, and be searched uh, their entire body in front of me. I didn't have to get strip searched, which was I was thankful for, but it was a great indignity, I thought, for them. They were used to it. They went through this on a couple of times a day. They were going out to the, um, the basketball court. They would be strip searched, right, on the way out, and then they would be strip searched on the way back in. The whole routine uh, would be repeated, and they had to go through this a couple of times a day. So. They, they told me this was no big deal, but I still said that this is such an indignity. I mean, you're, you're having to be stripped in front of your professor. Uh, it was shocking to me. And it was something that I, I, I found that uh, the experience of being in this place week after week after week uh, for six years, um, it's not something that we on the outside really uh, can really relate to. In many ways, prison is a non-place, because it's always the same. In many ways, prison is a historyless place. In that, there is no sense of what's going on in the outside world. There's no sense of past. There's no sense of future. Men who were in the classes, they were used to saying, hey, I'm going to be in prison for the rest of my life. I have no future. Some of the prisoners, I would ask them, how long have you been here? And they would be able to tell me the exact number of days in the thousands that they had been in the prison. They have nothing to look forward to. They have nothing to look backwards to. It's a historyless place and in many ways a non-place. So teaching the students history was a very interesting ministry. Teaching them history of Christianity, history of American of the American church. I'm a American church historian, so I taught American church history to them. Exposing them to people like Jonathan Edwards. Exposing them to people like Richard Allen. Exposing them to people like Martin Luther King Jr. Exposing them to ideas uh, in history of philosophy. Teaching them about Hegel. Teaching them about Kierkegaard. Opening their minds to that. Uh, teaching them about uh, W.B. Du Bois. Having them read Souls of Black Folk. Uh, in a class I taught in American cultural history, watching the white students read Du Bois. Most of the black students had already read Du Bois. Some of them had read Du Bois several times over, so I was a black girl. Watching the Hispanics read Du Bois and grapple with those ideas. I taught Western Civ, one and two, so you know, I, I taught them about um, you know, some, some of the, uh, the richness of the Western tradition, along with the failures of Westerners in, in history. 
uh, particularly with the slave trade and with, uh, with colonization and genocide. Watching them interact with these things, having their minds exposed, having their, their uh, conversations take place uh, in that community of that class for the first time. I mean, all of them had been to high school. You had to have a, a high school diploma to get in to the program. But almost to a man, all those guys school, I just barely made it through. But now they were ready to take it seriously, right? To teach them how to think historically. That thinking historically and thinking Christianly are not at odds with one another. Because Christianity is a historical faith. When, when you talk about theology, talk about, talk about the reliability of the New Testament, for example. Jesus was an actual person. Paul was a real person. Paul ate and drank. He had joys. He had defeats. He had sorrows. He had, he had joys. He, he was a real person. He lived. He breathed. He suffered. And he died. And he had a timeline. It, it, for those guys in the prison, they had not thought about these individuals as real living people. And for them to come to grips with the real living people, it, the only difference between them and and us is that they lived a long time ago, we live now in many ways. It was interesting for them to see, and it was, it was life-changing for them to see. When you teach Christianity, you're teaching history. When you teach people how to think Christianly, think about the Bible, think about the New Testament, think about theology, you're teaching them how to think about history, you're thinking teach, teaching them how to think historically, to think about change over time, to think about context. To think about complexity, historical complexity. To think about historical contingency. To watch them grapple with these things for the first time in their lives. You know, a model for civic engagement is found in Alexei de Tocqueville's work, Democracy in America. He writes about the New England townships. One of the things he observes about the New England townships in 1831 is that everybody has a stake in the uh, progress and the building up of the community, right? So if your neighbor is suffering, you suffer. But if your neighbor is flourishing, you're going to flourish. You know, it's part of this. And I'm not the only one, of course, in the program, but, but the, the nine of us that taught in this program were able to teach them to have stake. And then we didn't have to teach them after a while. After a while, they just took, they took those ideas, they took this idea of a personal stake in our community, and, and they took them. They formed a church. They called it Makarios, which is a Greek word that means blessed or happy. They formed a church. They began to preach. They began to have Bible studies. They began to invite other people that were in the general population to join them for their Bible studies. They saw conversion rates beginning to increase. People were getting saved. People were coming to Christ. The violence level, there's about a thousand people in this prison, the violence would decrease. The number of disciplinary uh, Write-ups and those kinds of things decreased over the six years that I was there. The warden was like completely blown away. Right? The warden is like, "What's the deal with this whole church group coming in here to my, my, my to my unit?" But after about a year, he was glad to have us because the level of violence decreased dramatically because of Macarius. Uh, now, I didn't teach theology. I didn't teach. Biblical studies, that was, other members of the faculty did that. But in teaching history, 
um, teaching Christian history, teaching um, history of thought, teaching Western Civ. Um, it, was, it was the most meaningful ministry that I've ever engaged in. I've been a teacher ever since I graduated from college in 1992. I've taught, um, taught in different schools, taught, you know, third grade all the way to 11th grade. Um, served on a pastoral staff for eight years. The Lord's given me a lot of opportunities to do ministry. The, the teaching in the prison was by far the most meaningful teaching experience I ever had. Students have the, the work ethic that probably most of you have here at an Ivy League school. It's not quite as a sophisticated a place. It's quite not a, a nice place, but in terms of what they are about, you would uh, be able to have conversations on the same level that you're used to having in the classes with them. Um, their work ethic was exemplary. Their respect uh, was amazing. The first day I ever walked in there for a class, I walk into class, there's 40 men in there, they all stand and give me a standing ovation. And I was like, what's going on? Did I, is there somebody behind me? Or, you know, um, They would write me letters uh, at, the end, at the end of a semester. Whole page, two pages of handwritten letters telling me what, how much I meant to them, and how, what a difference that I had made in their lives. I mean, from my perspective as a, as a teacher in that program, uh, nothing has been more meaningful to me than teaching in that program. If, if you are engaged in prison ministry, or if you have a desire to do that, you know, I encourage you to do it. Um, the Lord gave me this opportunity to do this. It was um, very special. It was very intense. Um, I would come home after being there all day, just go to bed. I would go to bed at 4 o'clock when I get to the house and sleep for two hours. It's just so, so exhausting. But, um, you know, I encourage you to get involved with uh, prison ministry. Um, and if you have the opportunity to do any teaching, you will see that uh, your experience will be very similar to mine. So I pray for you as the Lord, uh, as you seek the Lord about opportunities to minister, especially to, um, you know, a neglected segment of our population. Um, a segment of our population that uh, truly has, in many ways, uh, given up all hope. Um, if there's anybody that has good reason to give up hope, it's a, it's a prisoner in jail for life. But some of the most free people I ever saw were in prison because they knew and they understood what the gospel was all about. Thanks for letting me ask me your time.